few things cause anger and guilt in the church, like the subject of giving. And, at the very same time, few things bring joy and delight in the life of the church, like giving. I know that on any given Sunday, if we were to preach on giving, that there are some that perhaps might be prone to resentment or prone to even anger. And then at the others, uh, on the other hand, there are those who would love to stand and to testify and say, let me tell you the story of what God has done. Let me tell you about how the Lord has moved in my life and how the Lord has increased my delight through generosity. And so I want to make a promise to you today. I want to promise you because I know that you can't see in my heart. And honestly, I realize you're even going to have to take this promise at face value. But I want to promise you that my goal here is for your delight to increase. That's it. I refuse to preach a sermon on giving with its end aimed at building some business empire camouflaged as the church. I refuse. I will not compromise my integrity as a minister of the gospel for the sake of building up some business strategy of the church and advancing the cause of of whatever agenda we can come up with. That is not the deal. I refuse to do that. And a matter of fact, I got alone with the Lord last night again. Just, Lord, check my heart. There are people there struggling. There are people there that are discouraged. There are people there that are wounded. Lord, let it be that their delight is increased. And so I'm telling you on the front end, that is my heart. That is my goal. That you might see this as an opportunity for greater obedience in your walk with Christ. And at the very same time, as an opportunity, as a a new frontier for you to increase your delight and your enjoyment in the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, we're going to take a a quick breather here from the book of Matthew. I'm going to preach to you this week. We're going to talk from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles. And we actually have a very special treat next week in which Pastor John is going to be opening up Ephesians chapter 5 and and talking with us about worship and about singing and about delighting in our singing. So maybe we might even see this as a little mini-series on increasing our delight in God in ways that we firsthand wouldn't expect. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. Reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 6 and read through verse 15. God's inerrant word says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way through Uh, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing and many thanksgivings to God. 
By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Just as a caveat on the front end, we are not going to cover everything in verses 6 through 15. We'd be here about four hours, all right? And uh, as much as that would delight me, that would not increase your delight, at least for most of you, I would imagine, all right? So let me just give that caveat. We're going to spend most of our time talking about verses 6 and 7, and I want us to see how everything else kind of maybe helps support the, the main thought that Paul has here. So Paul is writing, and in the first five verses, he's begun to lay out the case for something that has apparently already been agreed upon with the church at Corinth. There are some Christians in need in the church in Jerusalem, some Jewish Christians. And so Paul has apparently appealed to this Gentile church in the city of Corinth to help meet the need of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, which in and of itself is a remarkable thought. Because the Jewish Christians were always kind of prone to look down on the Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians were always kind of prone to kind of have that little brother syndrome to the Jewish Christians. And so there's always kind of been a little bit of tension in the early church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And yet what do we see here? Cooperation, right? We see the Gentile church, the church at Corinth, taking responsibility to help meet the provisional needs of the church in Jerusalem. Now, Paul says that his goal here is to not is for them to understand in verse 5 that this is not an exaction. In other words, that they are not giving for the purpose of receiving back some type of retribution. That they should not view their giving to the church in Jerusalem as some kind of down payment in which the church in Jerusalem is going to refund them to a greater extent. I think probably what he's even saying there is that they should not be giving to the church of Jerusalem so that the church of Jerusalem will think highly of them as Gentile Christians. Instead, what they should do is they should guard their motive and guard their attitude and give out of the overflow of their gospel passion. Give out of the overflow of their relationship with Christ Jesus of the, in, in terms of to the generosity of Christ, may they now, like, as like-minded Christians, demonstrate generosity themselves. And what's fascinating and what's important here is who does God use to meet the needs within the kingdom of God? The local church, right? The local church. The, letter, the letters of First and Second Corinthians are written to a specific group of Christians that make up the local church in the city of Corinth. So this is one single local church that is now being asked to help contribute to the needs of another local church that is located in the city of Jerusalem. That there are a lot of good places in which we can send our money. There are a lot of good things in which we can send our, our resources. There are a lot of good charities out there and even parachurch ministries out there. And I don't even think those things are unbiblical. I don't even think those things are wrong. In fact, I believe that for those of you that God has so equipped and so burdened, those things are actually an overflow of gospel passion. 
But first and foremost, in the life of a Christian, the way we channel our resources for kingdom purposes happens through the local church. It is the local church that God has built so that the world might be blessed by him and might have a glimpse into the kingdom of God. And it is the local church that we can give to and know that it is the only single uh, biblically based uh, organization or institution through which we can send our funds or through which we can send our resources. There might be many other good ones. There might be many other ones that are accomplishing gospel good around the globe, but it is only the local church that I see as being totally biblically mandated in the life of the Christian. So this is an opportunity for us. This is an opportunity for us that God has given us as the local church to to let people have a a glimpse into the kingdom of God and to see the local church rise up. So moving into our passage this morning, it starts off with a proverb, right? Let's read it together, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, if I'm honest with you, that's a nerve-wracking text for me to preach this morning, all right? That, that, this is one of those, those, those proverbs that's found throughout the scriptures. In fact, often dealing with the very subject of, mountain, but, uh, of money, but it's found throughout the scriptures. But man, when it comes to money, I get really nervous talking about this particular proverb. Why? Because we have seen it so, so flagrantly and egregiously abused in our day. We have seen this principle read from the Bible by wolves who say that it means something that it other actually does. By wolves who use this passage to line their pockets so they can fly in their private jets around the world only to collect more money to line their pockets even deeper. So I want you to hear me on the front end and say I detest the prosperity gospel. I detest it. I detest the prosperity gospel that on this very morning is being preached in West Anniston to a group of impoverished people where they're going to compel and guilt single mothers to give up the very limited funds that they have to line the pockets of these wolves while their children have little to eat and little to wear. I detest it. I detest it because it cheapens the cross. I detest it because it preys on the poor. I detest it. I detest it because on this very day, already having been preached in Manzini, Swaziland, that Aaron mentioned, there are wolves preaching, telling impoverished people in a third world country, in, uh, in emaciated with HIV, not sure of where their food is going to come from, that they should give to them all that they have so that their pockets are lined. And while they drive around in their luxury cars, their people are perishing. I detest it. But this text is not intended to be nerve-wracking. This text is intended to be life-giving. This this text is not intended to in any way bind our conscience, but instead to liberate in our lives opportunity for delight, opportunity for enjoyment in God, opportunity to watch God work through, through providential means to use us for the advancement of his kingdom. Let me explain what he's saying here. I believe that what he's saying, the prosperity gospel says it like this. So bountifully in the kingdom of God and reap bountifully in the kingdoms of earth. Isn't that what it says? The prosperity gospel says 
invest in the eternal work of God and receive back paper that moths are going to destroy. Invest in the kingdom that lasts forever and as a reward, what you're going to get is a stack of rusted out precious metal. Right? Here's what I think Paul is teaching us. Here's what I think, in fact, the New Testament teaches us. Is invest whatever you have on earth into God's kingdom and you will reap a reward that far outlasts the world. In other words, so faithfully, so bountifully in the kingdom of God and you will reap bountifully in the kingdom of God. So bountifully in the kingdom of God, and you will reap bountifully in the kingdom of God. This is not about indulging your selfishness. This is about enjoying your God-centeredness. This is not about easing up what's only going to last for a little while. This is about investing in that which will last forever. About sowing into something that is far going to outlast your wealth, and far going to outlast your nest egg, and far going to outlast anything that you could drive live in or have here on this earth. So bountifully in the kingdom of God and receive and, 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 and reap bountifully in the kingdom of God. Let me point you to two verses here in our text that I think reinforces this. Verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All right, so what does that text say? say? It says that God is going to give you grace. And, and the word grace here is the exact same. Uh, what, what it's talking about here is God is going to give you provision. God is going to give you what you need. God is, as a matter of fact, going to let you abound in what you need. But to what end? So that you may do every good work. That God is going to give you exactly what you need. And I mean, th- th- this, this is how this text speaks to, to material things. He's going to give you the material things that you need, the financial things that you need, the time that you need, the abilities that you need, the talents that you need, the experiences that you need. God is going to give you all of the graces that you need that you may be able to abound in the work that he has set out before you. Sometimes that means when you demonstrate generosity... I think it is totally reasonable to say that oftentimes God rewards that generosity with greater generosity and the potential for you to give even more. For the potential to you to invest even more. But I think also what he's saying is if God calls you to a third world country where you have to filter the water that you drink, you will have the exact provisions that you need to delight in God and to accomplish his work. That God is going to give his children what they need to have joy in him, to have delight in his kingdom, and to advance his kingdom causes as ambassadors of Christ. That God will give you the graces that you need, channeling it through your generosity as a conduit in his kingdom to advance his causes and increase your delight. Let's look at verse 10 now. Verse 10. This is where some of the prosperity gospel guys love to go, all right? I hope I just like flip their, 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 their world upside down here, okay? Verse 10, it's probably not going to be that profound to you, but man, 
fires me up, all right? All right, so verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest, all right? Is that what it says? That's mostly what it says, right? That's mostly what it says. And so this is where the prosperity guys come in and they say, see, see there Baptist preacher, see there young guy, see there young buck, you give a dollar, you're going to get a thousand. You sow your seed of 5,000, get a Bentley. Sow your seed, receive back a multiplication of that seed. Sow your seed, sow your money into the kingdom of God and receive back. God will increase the very seed that you gave. Except that they stop short. Except that they stop short. Let's read all of verse 10 this time. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of what? Of your righteousness. Of your righteousness. I don't know about y'all, that don't sound like a Bentley to me. I don't know about y'all, that don't sound like a Learjet to me. What it sounds like is it sounds like that while you are giving in the kingdom of God and God is funneling generosity through you and God is funneling money through you and God is funding, funneling time through you and abilities through you, as God is, is doing that and you're pouring those things out, God is constantly pouring back into you so that you can keep the work going. And even while you use all of those temporary things, what is God doing simultaneously? He is stacking up in perpetuity a harvest of righteousness in heaven that you will enjoy joy forever y'all if this is about gold and money and vacations you're selling out cheap you're selling out cheap you're selling out for something that's not going to matter but if you will invest in the kingdom of God if you will sow in the kingdom of God for the purpose of reaping in the kingdom of God then you can take that which will only last for a little while and expect that its impact will last forever. That you can take something so small as a single dollar, in and of itself basically worthless in our society. The dollar menu at McDonald's is going away. Have you noticed that? You can't even get the double stack at Wendy's anymore for a dollar. You can take something as worthless as a dollar and yet used in the kingdom of God, the impact of that dollar will last forever. You can take 60 seconds of time. 60 seconds of time. It seems worthless in the grand scheme. And yet if you leverage that 60 seconds for the purpose of sowing the gospel into someone's heart, that 60 seconds, the impact can last forever. I don't know how long you're going to live. You might live 30 years. You might live 130 years. But can I tell you, if you live to be 130 in the grand scheme, what Miss Aura is going to tell you at 93 is this is not very long. It's just not very long. It's like a, a mist that's going to dissipate into the wind. But if you take your 30, you take your 40, you take your 80, and you invest it in the kingdom of God, you sow it bountifully in the kingdom of God, the impact of your life will last forever. Only a God as great as ours can take something as worthless as money and use it to build a kingdom that will endure forever. Only a God as great as ours 
can take something as seemingly insignificant as 60 seconds and use it to transform the life of a sinner, reconciling them to himself, to which they can delight and take pleasure in him for all of eternity. Only a God as great as ours can take a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old or an 80-year-old sinner and use them to sow bountifully into his kingdom to create a harvest and a work that will far outlast anything they could have ever accomplished otherwise. Long after Ted Turner dies and goes, long after Steve Jobs has been long forgotten, your life, the life that you have spent, will be enduring and impacting the very ones who are wearing the crown of righteousness in the presence of Christ himself. Brothers and sisters, before you is an opportunity. Before you is an opportunity. Randy Alcorn says it like this, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Brothers and sisters, let's send it ahead. Let's send it ahead. Let us sow bountifully in the kingdom of God that we might reap bountifully in the kingdom of God. Let us sow bountifully in the kingdom of God that that children might hear the gospel. Let us sow bountifully in the kingdom of God that orphans might have a roof over their head and a gospel presence in their lives. Let us sow bountifully in the kingdom of God that churches might be planted and that disciples might be made. Churches that will last far longer than your life. Do you think that the brothers and sisters that organized Iron City Baptist Church 130 years ago could have even perceived what today would be like? But brothers and sisters, their investment is going forward. Their investment is going ahead. Let us stand on their shoulders. Let us stand on the shoulders of the church at Corinth, on the shoulders of the church in Acts, and let us pay forward into the kingdom of God what God would have us to do. Now, at the center of what Paul is saying is what? Motive and attitude, right? It's not just about the giving. It's about the why. It's about the how. This is not new in New Testament Christianity, we remember what, what Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire a heart that is devoted to me, a heart that is passionate about the kingdom of God, a, a heart that is passionate about my, my glory. So Paul, building on that, takes us forward into the life of the giver. And so he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. So he starts off and he says, this is how you should not give. You should not give reluctantly. The word reluctant there more literally means with with sorrow, with grief. In other words, it means to give in a way that is going to cultivate resentment in your heart. It is, to, it is to begrudgingly lay down, the, lay down and then think about it all day long and regret it all day long and wish that it, things were other than they were. Wish that the call in your life was other than it is. It is to allow your giving to bring up a, 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 a resentfulness in your spirit. He also says that we should not do it under compulsion. I think the, the Baptist way for us to understand that would be not out of guilt. That we, we do not give out of guilt. We do not, we not, we do not uh, 
guilt the consciences of the church as the pastors of the church so that they might increase the savings account of the church. It undermines the very thing that Paul was talking about. It undermines the very glimpse into gospel giving, into gospel generosity. Now how are we to give with hearts that are liberated, with hearts that are delighted, with hearts that are generous, with hearts that are excited about what God's going to do, with hearts that are, are, are anchored in a gratitude to the God, almighty God of the universe. So does that mean that if you're giving resentfully, or you're giving reluctantly, or you're giving under compulsion, you're giving out of guilt, that you should stop giving? I think there's a, lo- there's, there's a way that logically you could, you could make that argument, right? The only difficulty is, is that you have to divorce that logic from the gospel. Why? If you were to tell me that, Cody, when I read my Bible, I always read it just out of obligation. I, matter of fact, when I read it, I kind of resent the time that I'm having to spend reading it thinking I could be watching another episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. And so I'm struggling. What should I do? Now let me ask you, do you expect in that moment for my counsel to be, well, by all means, put down your Bible and turn it to 304 and check out some TV land? Is that what you expect? No. What am I going to tell you to do? Repent of the begrudging nature of your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to change your attitude, to change your heart, to change your mind, to open up the scripture so that you can behold the glory of God, delighting in it, applying it to your life. What if you were to come to me and you were to say, Cody, I'm reluctant to tell the truth. A matter of fact, when I tell the truth, if I tell the truth, it's going to make life much harder for me. If I tell the truth, it's going to mean that it's going it's to cost me a relationship that I'm not real fired up about it costing me. It's going to cause people to think about me in a way that I don't really want them to think about me. So, since I'm reluctant to tell the truth, and telling the truth is going to make my life more difficult, not easier, should I not tell the truth? No! You should tell the truth. You should repent of your reluctance to say what is good and right. You should repent of your desire to make your life easier at the expense of your integrity and honor. The same is true with a heart that is reluctant to give. Greed and selfishness are not excuses to not give. They are sins from which we must repent. In fact, what I want you to understand this morning is that they are barriers. They are obstacles to greater delight in God. They are barriers and obstacles for greater usefulness in the kingdom of God. They are barriers and obstacles for you being able to take hold of that which God has given you. Because Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now I want you to think back through the Bible on how many things that it says that God loves. It's actually not very many. Not, we, we know that God loves many things just out of his character and out of the nature of who he is. But very few times in all of the Bible does it explicitly state that God loves this. But it says God loves a cheerful giver. In, in other words, God takes delight and pleasure in those who give freely out of their faith, freely out of their gospel passion. Why? 
Because they are doing that which God himself has done. Is God not the chief generosity uh, model in our lives? Is God not the one that has given to us far more than we could have ever dreamed of or ever deserved? Is God not the one who gives us not just food and drink, but righteousness through his son Christ Jesus? God takes pleasure in a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver are those who imitate God. So maybe this morning you're thinking, I'm still having trouble with joy. <laughs> like I hear what you're saying and I want to be there, but I still struggle. Here's what I think the issue is. The issue is, is whether or not you see God as a giver or as a taker. Your ability to give and delight is whether or not you see as God taking something from you or God having given something to you that you now steward it to his glory and his honor. The issue here is whether or not we will, we will take hold of the very principles that, that Paul has given to us, that everything is, is just merely coming through us as a conduit, as a vessel, or as we will see the check that we get and the money that we have obtained and the savings account, accounts that we've accumulated as entitlements that we deserve. Let me point to you in two verses. Verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able to make grace, all grace abound to you. Verse 10 says what? Who supplies the seed to the sower? He supplies the seed to the sower. See, our issue is, is that we get off kilter on the supplier. We, we begin to think that we are the supplier of our families. We are the provider of our families. We are the ones that went to work and did the work and earned the check. And so now it is rightfully mine. I am entitled to it. But let me ask you a question. How much control do you have over your health to be able to get and go to work? How much control do you have over the economy? How much control do you have over when you're driving to work on your daily commute that a car doesn't T-bone you and take you out? How much control do you have on whether or not your company or organization or business will even exist a year from now? You see, every single one of them, from the capacity of your mind to the experiences that you use, to the giftings that God has given you, to the breath in your lungs, the beat in your chest, the gas in your car, every single one of them are the gracious and merciful provision of God that allow you to be able to go and to work and to have a job and to bring in an income that you might be a conduit of his mercy and a conduit of his grace and a conduit of his glory to the nations. See, we are not entitled to a single thing. Because though we like to believe that we are autonomous and though we like to believe that we are in control, we in fact control nothing. God doesn't simply give you a job any more than God simply give, sing, gives you bread. No, God gives you the seed. God gives you the soil. God gives you the rain. God gives you the sun. God gives you the harvest. Not a single thing you own is yours. It is all the Lord's. And so brothers and sisters, I ask you to wrestle with the question, is God a giver or is is God a taker? You are not paying a tax to God. 
You are giving out of the overflow to God of what is already his. Knowing that the God who sends the rain and the God who controls the sun and the God who makes the seed will do it once again. Will bring it once again. See, there's a cycle. There's a cycle here. If you look in verse 8, it says, of a verse I've referenced several times, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. What's really cool is if you look at verse 15, what does it say? Verse 15 says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And what's cool about that is the word grace in verse 8 and the word thanks in verse 15 are the exact same verses. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, that word is translated as thankfulness. So there's a sense in which Paul is saying this. God doesn't just give you food and God doesn't just give you money. God gives you thankfulness itself. That your thankfulness, your gratitude is a gift from Almighty God for everything that contributes to your spirit of gratitude. Everything that contributes to your spirit of thankfulness are beyond your control and gifts from a sovereign, providential God. So there's a cycle that happens. God gives to you. You as a conduit and as a vessel are thankful and in gratitude. You submit to Christ and you reinvest bountifully, sowing bountifully into the kingdom of God. And what does God do yet again? He reinvests in you. That you might continue to be a conduit. That you might continue to be a vessel. That you might continue to invest in the kingdom. And so the cycle is happening. And so God is investing and, and you're taking joy in God and being filled with thankfulness. And, and then you're giving cheerfully and God is taking joy in you and, and being thankful to you. And so there's this cycle that is existing in perpetuity in the life of the Christian of, of joy to me and joy to God and pleasure to me and pleasure to God. So that it just spirals out of control all while you are stacking up a harvest of righteousness that will exist in perpetuity, in eternal, in eternity, that you will always love and joy. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that this is nothing more than you being able to delight in God. This is nothing more than you being able to take greater joy in God, than you being happier in God. So I want to land this thing on a challenge this morning. Perhaps some of you would say, I have never given a single gift to the Lord, a single offering to the Lord out of anything less than guilt and resentment. As a matter of fact, if you go through my life, you'd see my giving looks a lot like this because I'll I'll feel guilty and so I'll do it and then I'll feel resentful and I won't do it and I'll feel guilty and I'll do it and I'll feel resentful and I won't do it. Or maybe some of you are here and you say, you know what, I don't have any delight in giving anymore because though I do it and though I've done it, I'm on autopilot. And it's not sacrificial for me anymore. I don't really even miss it. It's more like me paying my property taxes. It just kind of comes out and I don't really notice it. And I just, it's just kind of just part of living life and being, being, being here. I want to challenge you to do something. What if, as a marker of your repentance, you gave a one-time gift that's larger than any gift you've ever given? Just one time. What if you gave a one-time gift, a one-time offering to the Lord to say, Lord, from this day forward, things are going to be different. From this day forward, my heart is going to be different. I'm going to approach this, I'm going to approach generosity different. Now look, I know some of you, you, you may have given such a substantial gift in the past, that's, not even a, that's, not, that's, not, that's probably not possible, that may not be possible for you right now. That's okay. I'm not trying to bind your conscience. For some of you, you're, you're thinking, 
Well, I've never given anything. Well, then, man, $5 is more than you've ever given. Start there. That's okay. That's okay. Maybe five is what, maybe five is where you've been. So go to 10. Maybe you spent 100. Give, give 200. For some, it may be 5,000. For some, it may be 50,000. That's irrelevant. Start where you are and enjoy and in cheerfulness and in faith in the kingdom so bountifully in the kingdom of God. And I dare you, I dare you to say that it doesn't increase your delight. I dare you to say that it doesn't increase your joy when you begin to perceive that God is going to use that which we would have blown to advance his cause and advance his kingdom and exclaim his name. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer.